Well, we're two weeks into a new sermon series. If you're kind of new with us, this is the perfect time to be here. Uh, Dan, my friend Dan spoke a couple weeks ago and he talked about one of his favorite movie, Free Solo, is this documentary. Um, sorry, I'm bringing it up again, Gretchen. Um, but a lot of you have seen that movie. It's, and, and I'm bringing it up again because it is a, such a compelling movie. And I'm, I'm a big movie fan, and so there, I just really, really enjoy compelling movies. I, the other night, I was on Hulu, and I was like, it was like 11.30, and I was like, you know what, I need to go to bed. But I'm just going to start watching this documentary, but I'm just going to watch it for like 10 minutes, <laughs> and I'm going to go to bed. And then, you know, two hours later, I'm just enthralled, enthralled in this documentary. It's, it's, on, it's on Hulu. It's called Delt, and it's about this guy right here. His name is Richard Turner. This is Richard Turner right here. He's, he's widely known as, as one of the, the best card mechanic in the world, a close-up um, card magician. And so the documentary starts, and it's about him, and he's like all this crazy stuff with cards. And then in, in about like 20 minutes into the documentary, you're starting to notice something, and you're like, wait a minute. And then like the truth comes out. This guy is blind. He's blind. Oh, all right. Way to go. And he's been blind since, he's been blind since high school, and he's... And he's widely, widely known as like the best. I mean, I don't even, I can't even comprehend. It's just so incredible. We're uh, compelling movies, compelling documentaries. I mean, we love them because they're compelling, right? Um, that's why they're so interesting. <clears throat> and what we're talking about for these weeks here at, at Westside is I wanna, we want to take you into the most compelling story that ever is, ever was, and ever will be. And it's not just a story, but it's actually the story that we find ourselves in. The story of Christianity is the most compelling story that a human being can, can come up against. And like last week, if you missed last week, you got to listen online, but the, this Christian story answers the deepest longing questions of the human heart. It answers, does anybody want me? In spite of what I've done, does anybody still want me? Is there a way back home and is everything going to be okay? And the Christian story answers all of those questions that our, every human being, our hearts are, are asking and longing for. It's a compelling story, but not only that, Jesus was compelling. Jesus is the most compelling person to ever walk this planet. We're still talking about him 2,000 years later. Um, <clears throat> and the funny thing about Jesus is as he walked around and talked, I mean, his, his life was so compelling. This is, this is interesting. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. That's really tremendous. Jesus just walked this balance where he didn't, you know, he didn't validate everybody's, everybody's choices in their life. He didn't value their, you know, he didn't, uh, you know, say like, oh, that's fine if you do that. That's fine if you do that. I mean, they knew that Jesus, Jesus was, was bringing a message that was different, but yet they just, they liked him. They wanted to be with him. Jesus was compelling. It's the most compelling message from the most compelling person. And unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of people, a lot of people aren't compelled to follow Jesus because they haven't met any compelling Christians or they haven't encountered a compelling church or they just, they just really haven't heard how compelling the Christian story is. And that's a shame. I mean, that's so, that's, that's, that just breaks my heart when people don't understand how compelling Jesus is and how compelling the story is because maybe they haven't met any compelling Christians, they haven't been introduced to a compelling church, or maybe they just haven't heard how compelling this story is. So for 10 weeks, it's basically going to take us all the way up till Easter, is every Sunday we're just going to take like a big thread in this story and just kind of unpack it and see how beautiful and wonderful it is. And my hope is that we're just all compelled. Now listen, uh, there's a lot of different people in the room. Maybe today you're here and this is, this is a brand new thing for you. You just haven't, I, I don't know what your history is, but maybe just you haven't heard the story yet. Gosh, I, I am so glad you're here. This is the place to be. 
I just hope you just hear it with fresh ears today. For a lot of us, for a lot of us, you grew up in church maybe, or you kind of, you know, you've kind of heard the story. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for us to ask the question, um, you know, like, or it's easy for us to say, ah, I've heard this already. Like, I know this already. But what I'm, what I'm kind of forcing us to do, if you've been around church for a while, if you've been a Christian for a while, I don't, I don't want you to ask, do I know this already, okay? Because you might probably already know it. I want you to ask a different question. I want you to ask, can I share this? I don't want you just to ask, do I know this? I want you to ask, can I share this? See, that just puts a different spin on it because see, it's not, I, I, can't, I can't share the story with everybody that you work with, all right? I'm never going to meet them. See, you're placed in their life and in your business and in your industry, whatever, because you get to be this like, this beacon, this person who gets to carry the story with them. And when the time's appropriate and in the right context, then you just get to, you get to share the story. So I want you to ask the question, not just do I know this, but can I share this? Can I share this? Do you have it in you deep enough to where you can share it? What's confusing about this story is that there's tons of other competing stories in our culture about what's, what's a human being and what, what brings worth to a human being's life. All sorts of competing stories. And so we just are living in this fog, this soup of tons of different, just tons of different stories that are telling us how this world actually is and what makes it matter and what we're supposed to be doing with our time and with our lives. And so it's confusing. It reminds me of, of one of my son's t-shirts. Uh, my son Jeremiah wears this t-shirt around. He's, it says, I never got my acceptance letter from Hogwarts, so I'm leaving the Shire and becoming a Jedi. Yeah. It's like there's so many different stories just in our culture that are just weaved over the top of each other. And there's even some false Christian stories out there. Like, hey, if you follow Jesus, you will be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And if any of those three things happens, that means you don't have enough faith. That's a common story that's, that is told throughout Christianity. So there's, it's confusing, all sorts of stories. So it's important that, uh, that we get the story in us. And I, like I said last week, I feel like I should change my title from pastor to the chief story championer and reminder director. You know, like that's just what I'm doing every week. We're just reminding ourselves of the story. So I want to take you to Matthew chapter 4. And what... And, you know, it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the stories of the eyewitness accounts of what Jesus is doing. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, this is this first time, his first time where he's addressing, he's addressing like the, the public. He's addressing this, this crowd. And, uh, and what he has to say is so huge. And what he has to say is so foundational for us to understand the story. And the funny thing is, is that the thing that Jesus is talking about here is often forgotten sometimes when we talk about the Christian story. And it's kind of a funny thing that we forget to talk about it because it's, it's the biggest theme that Jesus talks about. And he talks about it the very first time that he addresses a crowd in Matthew chapter 4. Um, but first, we have to enter into their world. Imagine you're a fisherman and you're Jewish and you are, you're living in first century Israel, Palestine, and you're living in your ancestral homeland and you also are living with your people who are not free. You're not living free. There's this, there's this uh, um, invading force that's come. The Romans, are, are there's checkpoints everywhere. Um, there's people, you know, with swords and uniforms stationed all around. So you just never feel quite safe. Um, they keep raising taxes over and over and over again. And if you don't pay those taxes, then they're going to send, you know, Guido to your house to break your kneecaps if you don't pay. 
And then, you know, and then you just had your, your uncle and your cousin just had to sell their ancient, like, family ancestral home plot of land um, for, like, on the cheap because they were just starving and they need the money. And so they just had to sell it on the cheap, on the cheap to, like, some Roman official that wanted a, a summer cottage. And, you know, this is the context. I mean, it's just like you're, you're oppressed and financially and, you know, and socially and just all sorts of ways. This is, where, this is where you are. And you hear these reports that there's this guy, this young man from Nazareth named Jesus. And he's acting like a prophet and he's walking around and he's just got this explosive message. Explosive message. And there's huge crowds that are coming and people are getting healed. And you, and, and you hear that he is not only in your town, but he's going to be walking along the shore of the, of the lake that you fish in. You hear he's coming to your shore. And so you like, I got to go hear this guy. And so you kind of get there. There's a huge crowd. You have to work your way through the people. And you got to like get in there and you hear his voice and you hear him talking to the people. And my question to you this morning is what do you hear him, what do you, what do you think you hear him saying? What do you think you hear him talking about? Because what you imagine Jesus to be talking about right here in this moment says a lot about how you view Jesus right now today. What do you hear him talking about? Because it's going to say a lot about how you view Jesus and what his message was and what he came to do. What are some of the options of, of things that maybe Jesus was talking about, the, this thing that's at the center of his message? Um, was he talking about good morals? Was he talking about good morals? Certainly Jesus is an, is, is an incredible teacher. He's using all these different illustrations. And he has, you know, and Jesus has some classics. He's got the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? He's got that one in his tool belt. He's got, you know, he's got like, hey, you know, turn the other cheek and love your enemies. So he's got some really, really awesome moral teaching. But, but this isn't the center. This is just, this is a part of this bigger theme that he's saying. What, what's next? What else could he be talking about? Maybe, um, maybe he's talking about money. Is that what he's talking about? That's what a lot of people think that us Christians talk about all the time when we're at church. Did Jesus talk a lot about money? You bet he did. He did. But that wasn't his, he wasn't asking for it. He wasn't saying, hey, if I had a, a private plane, guys, I could take this. all." You know, that was not Jesus' message. Some of you are laughing because you, you, you know. Jesus talked a lot, but it, it, talking about money was a part of a bigger story. What else? What else maybe what was he talking about? Was he talking about hell? That's what some people think Jesus was talking about or what Christians like to talk about. Did Jesus talk a lot about hell? He did, actually. Jesus talked a lot about hell. The funny thing about Jesus talking about hell is Jesus was always talking about hell to a certain group of people, the religious establishment, the Pharisees. That's who Jesus was talking about hell to. Jesus is not talking about hell to the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the people coming because they know they need him. But the religious people don't think they need him. And so Jesus has some stern warnings. What else? What else maybe who was he talking about? Is he talking about make Israel great again? Is that his message? Guys, we got to take it back from the Romans. No, that's not his message. What else? What else was he talking about? Was he talking about being blessed? He talked about that. He talked about that, but it wasn't the core. It wasn't the core of what he's talking about. What else? Maybe it was sin. Maybe he's just talking a lot about sin. Jesus talked about some talked about sin. But was this like the core, this is like the message of, of, of the, this message that he's bringing? No, no, no. Last one, is it try harder? Maybe that was his message. Come on, guys. If you just try harder, these Romans wouldn't be in here. You guys would be fine. Was that his message? No, that wasn't his message. 
What was Jesus talking about? Well, here's what he says. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. And he said, repent, which means pay attention, stop. I'm about to lay something on you that's going to demand a response. Pay attention because what I'm about to, to share with you is going to kind of force you to like, it's going to push you to decide. You have a decision to make about how you're going to respond to what I'm about to say. So he says, repent. And then he says this, for the, for the what? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew often calls it the kingdom of heaven, but some of the other gospels, they use the phrase the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it's the same phrase that Jesus would go around talking about all the time, talking about the kingdom, the kingdom. Um, it might be surprising to you, but the kingdom was the central message of Jesus Christ. The kingdom. Now that might surprise some of us because we're expecting, you know, no, it was try harder or it was sin or it was money or wait a minute, it was the kingdom? Yes. Can I just take you on a little tour? Just come with me, all right? Um, let me read you, read you a few. Let me see if I can convince you. Um, rapid fire. Uh, let's, let's go to this next one. So uh, Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Next one. He goes like this. Matthew 6, a little bit later, says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Next one. Mark, verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And he says, the time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. But he said to them, I must, pro I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because, because that is why I was sent to proclaim the kingdom. He goes, but then he said, I must, then he says this, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Hold on just, just a second. Have I convinced you yet? No? Okay, let's keep going. All right. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another. And what was he doing? Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases. And then he sent them out to what? Proclaim the kingdom of God. And when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And then the, he took them with, him, with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. And he welcomed them. And what did he talk to them about? The kingdom. Once, uh, I'm being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is what? It's here. It's in your midst. Have I convinced you yet? No, okay, let's keep going then. All right, let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, for, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever, oh, I'm not done. No, you don't do that. Don't do that to me. Whoever does not receive the what? The kingdom. All right, now you can go. And then he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Now he's starting to get into some of his parables. And what are these parables about? Are they like nice, like pithy little statements about like, you know, with a moral? No, he's like this, this parable I'm about to tell you, it's going to help you see the kingdom. Well, keep going. And then Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed. What else? And he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 60 pounds of flour and worked all the way through the dough. Next one. 
Next one. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Next one. Come on, have I convinced you yet? Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Next one. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Next one. Now we're in Acts, by the way. And after his suffering, this is Jesus, this is after the resurrected Jesus. What does he do? Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he's with his disciples. And he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive and he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And what was he talking to them about for 40 days? The kingdom. And then it doesn't even stop with Jesus. I mean, his early followers, like, you think they're picking up on this, right? It's like, this is about the kingdom. And so now Jesus has already gone. And then what happens in Acts chapter 19? Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. And he, what is he talking, arguing persuasively about for three months? What is he talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of God. I think here's the last one. <laughs> they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. And he witnessed to them. Now, this is at the end of, of, of Paul's life. He's about, to be, he's about to be killed. And what is he still talking about? He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom. The kingdom is the central message of Jesus Christ. And it's funny that we just don't talk about it as much. But it's the kingdom. Okay, so what is the kingdom? What does this mean? I mean, Jesus has to explain it. He has to spend months. I mean, just this is the, the whole message. So I can't do it in just a few minutes. But here's, here's my shot. What does it mean? First, you have to look back at the whole story. Where, um, where this is a great conversation for your next small group or like for when you're out with your friends um, getting a drink. Um, where is the first place where you see the, the idea of kingdom, of ruling and reigning, um, like kings and kingdoms? Where is the first place you see that in the Bible? It's like page one. <laughs> it's at the very beginning. Uh, it's, you know, God creates this beautiful world out of chaos. It's not because he's lonely. It's not because he just needs people to serve him because he just needs to like feel important. But he's got so much love to give and so much creative energy that he wants to share it. And so he creates, he creates. And it says this, this is from Genesis chapter one, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over it. Rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Here's what's so cool. God doesn't just, he doesn't create slaves or even just create like buddies or friends. He creates like partners. There's this partnership thing that happens at the very beginning, which is actually really profound and beautiful because he, he creates managers that they're supposed to, they're image bearers of him and they're supposed to rule on his behalf. They're installed as kings and queens of creation. And it's not that they're like creating their own, their, you know, like their own worlds or any, that's a different religion, all right? <laughs> that's not what this story is. But they're, God's the creator and they get to take it and steward it. A lot of times when we think of like the garden and original creation, we think that God made it, it was like perfect, perfect, perfect. And therefore that all humans have to do is just figure out a way to build a hammock and drink a margarita. And that's like, and that's all we have to do. But that's not the picture that we get here. That this, new, this creation is like in seed form. It's supposed to be cultivated. It's supposed to be maximized. It's supposed to be like, it's supposed to be, uh, you know, multiplied. And the humans get to be a part of that process with God. So it's like a really, really cool thing. God gives them this place not to just sit and chill, but to work and to create and to, and to build and grow things. 
They're partners with God. And uh, here's the next question. How long do things uh, go well? How long do things go, go well for? About a half a page. <laughs> Maybe in your Bible, it's a page. Things don't go well for very long. Because what happens is they see their opportunity to rule as an opportunity to replace God with themselves. Their opportunity to be co, you know, like rulers and workers underneath God, they decide that's not good enough for us. We don't want you to be in charge. We want to be in charge. And so they say, so what they end up doing is they end up, you know, relegating God to this place where, hey, God, we're grateful for you. And could you show up when I need help on my midterm? And can you kind of like show up when I need help? But aside from that, we're going to be our own rulers and kings and queens because we don't want to be ruled by a king. We want to be our own king. And what they're essentially doing here is the Bible's explanation for why, why we live in such a beautiful world, but why we also live in such a tragic world. That what they do in this moment is they're creating an alternate kingdom for themselves. God creates this place where humans and, and, and his creation are supposed to re be in harmony together. But they say, we want to create an alternate kingdom. You know, Marvel has done us a good favor here by introducing us to the multiverse. Because this is a great way of understanding it. There's like this, there's like this alternate kingdom where humans say, you know what, God, we don't want you in it. We appreciate your sunsets and we appreciate your nice things. But we just want to be in charge. And this is the Bible's explanation for just why the world is the way that it is. That this alternate kingdom that, that, that we have built, the Bible uses some different language for. It talks about it being the, the kingdom of the world or the world. Sometimes when, when Christians talk about the world, we we're talking about this alternate kingdoms that we have created. Um, sometimes, you know, Paul talks about it using the language of the flesh. That is this alternate kingdom. And so therefore, you know, we, we've, and in this alternate kingdom, we've introduced racism, we've introduced pride, we've introduced death, we've introduced I'm better than you, we've introduced all of this ugliness that has caused so many things to go wrong and broken in our world. And we're in this kingdom, we're living in this kingdom and we're, we wonder, you know, we say, God, like if this truly is your kingdom that you created, why, why are there, why are there shootings? Why are there, why is there racism? Why is there greed? Why is there racism? Why is this stuff happening? Why does it feel like you're not in it? God, are you asleep? God, or maybe did you create it, but you just don't care now? Or maybe God, you just don't exist in the first place. But we shake our fists at God. But the Bible's way of describing to us what's gone wrong is that we've created an alternate kingdom. And we create it every single day with our decisions. It's in our past, it's in our right now, it's in our hearts. But there's something in us that doesn't want to be ruled and reigned by God, and it causes all sorts of chaos in our world. And you can see it in the story in the book of Genesis because it just marches right into the very next story. After, after this that I read, right, it's like Adam and Eve, they sin, and, you know, th there's, there's things happen to the garden. They can't live in the same way that there's this spiritual death that takes place. Um, and then the very next story after that is Cain and Abel, and it's it's... It's this alternate kingdom. We just, we see it happening with Cain and Abel. And then the very next story after that is this, is the people get together and they say, hey, we want to build a huge tower because we want to feel like gods ourselves. It's the Tower of Babel. And you're going to see this story all throughout the rest of scripture because the Tower of Babel is, it eventually becomes this, this place called Babylon. Babylon. And you'll see Babylon all throughout the scripture. But Babylon is, was a place then, but Babylon still exists today. 
but just not as a place anymore. Babylon exists in our hearts. It exists in this alternate kingdom that we create. Babylon, we are building Babylon every time we look down our noses at other people. We're creating Babylon every time we try to perform our way into God's good graces. We're, we're creating Babylon when we push other people down so that we could be lifted up. We're creating Babylon when we gossip about other people to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. This idea of Babylon is just all throughout, all throughout the scripture. And God is in this place where he says, gosh, I so want to rescue you from Babylon. I want to I pull you out of Babylon. I don't want you to live there. That's not how I designed you to live. And so God's on this rescue mission trying to rescue us from Babylon. Can you guys think of something that happened in the Old Testament that was like a big deal in the Old Testament where God is rescuing his people from this like big, bad, sort of Babylon-like empire? Can you, think, can you think of a story like that? It's the Exodus story. But in that situation, it's not Babylon. It's, it's Egypt and it's Pharaoh. See, it's Egypt and it's Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is ruling with power, oppression. And he's, he's like the epitome of this alternate kingdom. That, he's, uh, that we've created, that humans have created. And God says, that's not the kingdom I've created humans to live in. Pharaoh essentially gives God the proverbial finger and says, you know what? Come at me, God. And Pharaoh takes his gloves off and God takes his gloves off and the story gets intense. The story gets really intense in the Exodus story. But God rescues them and what? He brings them, he brings the people out they, they sing songs, they're so grateful for this, this king, this ruler that they have that's not like Pharaoh at all. And then God takes them to this mountain, Mount Sinai, and he gives them some, some, some ways of living in this kingdom that God wants to create with the Israelites. He says, I want you to be this group of people that live under my lordship, under my kingship. And move away. It's like, it's like I want you to immigrate from, the, from this alternate kingdom that we've created and I want you... I want you to come back. I want you to come back into this, this, this kingdom that I've created. It was God's hope and plan for the Israelites. And so he gives them rules and laws to live by. Next question. How long do things go well for Israel? They get the laws. God's their king now. How long does it go well? Maybe like a half an hour. <laughs> I mean, literally like a page. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and oh, you just read it for yourself. It's wild. But this is the story. It's God continuing to rescue out his people and the people continuing to say they don't have transformed hearts. They keep saying, I want to be my own God. And this just keeps going and going and going. And the prophets, the prophets of Israel were, were, were crying out. and for, were, They were longing for the day when finally God would come. That God would come in his fullness and his realness and would, and would, would bring back his, his kingdom. They would bring us back and we would live underneath his lordship again instead of, instead, of this, instead of this alternate kingdom that we've created. The prophets were just like waiting and waiting for this moment to come. When God would come and he would make all things right again. So that's the backstory. And so imagine you're a fisherman and you're Jewish, and you've been growing up with these stories that God's kingdom is gonna come someday, and then you hear of this Jewish prophet, this guy who's walking around and just crying out, the kingdom of God is here. You waited your way through the crowd, and finally you hear, you hear Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is here, and I'm the king. Oh. I mean, you're like, this is what we've been waiting for. I mean, this is, this is finally it. 
except then they were all utterly just confused by Jesus because Jesus did not act like the king that they were expecting. They were expecting something completely different. They're expecting Jesus to come with a sword and to kick out all the Romans. What does Jesus do in this very next, right after Matthew 4? He says, repent for the kingdom of God is here. What does this King Jesus do? He takes a stroll. (laughs) He just goes for a walk on on the riverbank. And what does he do? He finds a group of guys, they're fishing. And he says, hey, I want you to leave your nets and I want you to come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. He's calling the disciples. Do you remember how many disciples he, he calls? He calls 12. What is he doing? What is he doing? It's, it's representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is, is calling and remaking a new kind of people. You know what this is? This is a reboot. This is a reboot. Now, but now is Jesus in the flesh. And he says, listen, I'm going to make, this is going to be new now. Because I'm going to give you something that you didn't have before. Before it was kind of like rules and it was outward in, but now I'm going to give you a transformed heart so that you can follow, so that you can walk with me. He's rebooting everything. He's starting the story fresh. The funny thing is that when you read about Jesus in the Bible, it says that his name is Jesus Christ. And you guys know that Christ, is, Christ isn't his last name, right? It wasn't Mary and Joseph Christ. Uh, Christ is a title. It means Messiah. It means king. What I like to do when I'm reading the Bible is when I see Jesus Christ, I just insert king in there. I I just read King Jesus. King Jesus. King Jesus went this way. King Jesus went that way. It's in his name. It's his title. He's coming. He's the king. And he's rebooting everything. And then the funny thing is, is, you know, uh, you know, how how do you then live in the kingdom? Like, how in the world does this kingdom come? I mean, what are you supposed to do? Well, lo and behold, guess what? The next three chapters, Matthew 5, Matthew 6 and Matthew 7 are all about instructions of how in the world do we live in the kingdom. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. Your Bible might have a title that says Sermon on the Mount. Your Bible might say the Beatitudes. But what does Matthew call it? Matthew called it, calls it the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is giving us instructions for how to live in his kingdom. I'm calling you to live under a new king, under a new regime. That means you're going to have to leave the country of of, of or You're going to have to leave your alternate kingdom. You're going to have to come into my kingdom. And this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. And I can't read you uh, Matthew 5, 6, or 7 today. I want you to read that on your own. But um, it's going to make you uncomfortable. It's going to tick you off in some places. It's going to challenge you in places that maybe you've never been challenged before. Because this is how it looks to, to live in the kingdom. Jesus tells us. He says, listen, I've created it. I want you to participate in it. I want you to come into it. Okay. What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with you? Has everything to do with you. Has everything to do with me. It's asking the question, who's in charge? Who's in charge of your life? Who do you give your allegiance to? And who you give your allegiance to says so much about who you are and what kind of person you will become and you're becoming. If you, if you declare your allegiance to anything, I'm just gonna humbly submit this to you today. If you declare your allegiance to anything else besides Jesus, it will leave you dry. It'll leave you dry. It'll always leave you disappointed. You can never make enough money. You can never get enough sex. You can never have, get enough relationship to reach that place where finally I've made it. You'll, you'll, it'll, you'll always be left dry. And only the invitation to come and be a part of the kingdom of God will be the thing 
that will, that will transform your heart and make all things new. I'm going to come to a close here. I want, I want Jenny, if she, if she could, to come up. and um, I'm going to ask us to respond, but just a couple things, a couple ways I want us to re- respond. First is I just have like a, kind of like a warning. It's for all of us. It's for all of us. But in the past, um, and maybe like t- 10 people care about this, what I'm about to say, all right? But uh, I don't know. I'm just going for it. But uh, for the past century, there have been a lot of Christians that have kind of, you know, they've, they've kind of said, you know what? You know what our job is? Is we're supposed to build the kingdom. We're supposed to bring the kingdom. And so they've built organizations and, and, and uh, you know, and, and different, different organizations and, and structures to like try to bring the kingdom. But my question is, we just have to be very careful because whose kingdom is it? It's his kingdom. And who brings the kingdom? Jesus. Jesus brings the kingdom. So we just get to participate in it. But what sometimes happens is we build structures and institutions and organizations because it's our job to bring the kingdom. But sometimes we blend the lines too closely between the organization that I built and actually the kingdom of God to where it becomes they're one and the same to where it's like, hey God, you gotta be so glad that my organization's on your team because we're bringing the kingdom. And we just have to be careful because, because it's possible to have an organization that says it's building the kingdom without participating in the kingdom. That's a very, very dangerous thing. In fact, it's caused a lot of people to say, I don't believe in Christianity at all because they're not coming with as like kingdom people. They're just building kingdom organizations and they're just trying to push the kingdom on people. Listen, it's our job not to push the kingdom on people. It's our job to participate in the kingdom. He's inviting us to participate in it. That's how the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes doesn't, not because we build it. God, Jesus has built it. He's the king of it. It comes because we become humble people that participate in it. We humbly submit ourselves to his lordship and to his kingship. That's how it comes. That's how it spreads. That's how it always has spread. So um, we have a decision to make. You have a decision to make. Who's your king? Who's your king? Just look at Jesus's life. The people that saw him and knew they needed a king were the ones that got him. They were the ones that, that, that got him. And the people that Jesus talked to that didn't think they, need a king, they needed a king, when Jesus came and went around declaring that he was a king, it didn't make them humble, it made them hard. They wanted to kill him. They were threatened by his kingship. Are you threatened by his kingship? Do you welcome it? It's an important question. We gotta always, I have to ask that question all the time. I, I think of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia series, The Last Battle. And in that book, such a tremendous book, in that book is this picture of like the end of Narnia. And it's like Aslan, the, the God figure is standing there and all the animals are like lining up. And it's this intense, just beautiful thing where they're lining up in a line and they look in his face. They look in this great lion's face. And there's two kinds of, people that look in his face. There's, there's one group of people that look in his face and they see a king and their hearts are, they don't want a king. So they look at Aslan's face and they sneer. I don't want you to be my king. And so Aslan says, okay, then I don't have to be your king. You can go this way. And then there was another group of people that looked in his face and they saw this great lion. And instead of a sneer, it was just, it was the look of, of terror, but like, but like, I'm at home with you. I'm safe with you. I know I am. You're my king. Be my king. And that's the decision that I'm just humbly just putting before us today. Who's your king? 
Have you let him be king? And this is what we're doing as a community. We're learning how to live together and what it looks like to live under the reign of King Jesus. It means it includes our money, our time, when people offend you, when we disagree, when we encounter tragedy, when we enjoy all the good things that God has made, we're learning how to be, how to be a community that's walking under the, the Lordship of Jesus. So maybe there's, there's two groups of people here. Number one, you've been kicking the tires long enough. You've been kicking the tires long enough. It's just time, just time for you to say, Lord, I want you to be my King. I want you to be my Lord. Maybe this is your morning, it's your time. You just get to say, yes, King, Jesus, come, be a part of my life. Maybe you're a Christian and you've been a part of church for a long time, but if you were really honest, Jesus has been your coach, he's been your guru, but he hasn't ever quite been your King. Let him be your King today. Let him be your King today. Let him be your King. He's looking at you and he's saying, let me in, let me in. Come to the kingdom, I'll pray for us. Father. We just respond this morning just by saying, Lord, you are good, you are great, you're king. We repent for creating alternate kingdoms. We do it all the time. And Lord, we don't wanna live that way. We wanna live under your kingship and your lordship. So Lord, would you soften our hearts? Lord, this, this thing in us that maybe wants to sneer at your, at your lordship and kingship, because it feels like that we might be like giving up our life that really we would see it as what it actually is. It is giving up our life. It's an immigration from a country that we've created to a country that you created us to live in. And Lord, that's where we wanna live. That's where we wanna be. So Lord, we just humbly ask, Lord, help us, help us. We make you king today. We make you king in Jesus' name.